recent weeks as I've had opportunity to preach. I've been preaching from the book of Genesis, and in particular we are found in Genesis chapter 3 at this point, but I want to read the last verse of Genesis chapter 2, Genesis 2.25, and on down through verse 7 of the next chapter. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to that place, Genesis chapter 2 and verse 25. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the servant said to the woman, serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day that you eat it, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. Let's now pray for the help of God in opening up these words. Most blessed and holy God, we could wish that In the history of mankind, there were not this chapter written of it. We could wish that we too had not been affected by what took place so long ago. But we confess that together with our first parents, we too have rebelled against you. We have blatantly disobeyed what you told us. And yet we do thank you that you provided a savior You provided us a way by which we might be right with you once again. You provided also directives through what we have just read as to how we can resist the enticements of the evil one. We pray that your spirit would even now teach us how this might take place. We pray in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. One of the chief ways to reduce the severity of sin in our minds is the use of euphemisms. Euphemisms are little phrases that replace uh, very more straightforward words. Like the fig leaves that Adam and Eve used to try to cover their sin, we often use euphemism to soften the nature of sin. And often these euphemisms, they are even used from the pulpit in places especially in churches where everything is geared toward giving people a feel-good experience. You don't want to talk about negative things, so you redefine sin. And some of these euphemisms are used in a general way to replace the biblical words such as sin or transgression. So instead of sin or instead of transgression, we use words like moral failure or a mistake or a flaw or an error, or an indiscretion, oversight, 
or a shortcoming. And then there are other euphemisms that are used when we attempt to minimize sin and keep unrepentant sinners coming to church because they want to bother them and trouble them with too straightforward of language. And so we talk about a slip-up. The floor was wet and you slipped up. It's, who could help it? You just slipped up. We talk about a hiccup. Maybe you can drink some water while you're holding your nose and you stop the hiccup, it'll go away. It's a misstep. He was going up the stairs and he missed a step. A blunder. He's, he's not sinning. He's just a blunderer, a lovable grandpa you see on a sitcom that just blunders. We talk about somebody that's misguided. You see, he didn't sin. He was just misguided. He's the victim of an unnamed guide that took him the wrong way. We talk about a lapse in judgment. He didn't sin. His judgment lapsed. Or a misunderstanding. You see, he didn't really sin. You're just misunderstanding the circumstances. Or he just misunderstood the situation. And then instead of these euphemisms, the Bible, you see, it uses such words as sin, iniquity, trespass, transgression, guilt, disobedience, unrighteousness, wickedness, and evil doing. These are words that are kind of illegal in many churches in our day. Well, in addition to these one-word euphemisms for sin, there are a whole host of euphemistic descriptions of sin. And these descriptions, they all have the tendency to lessen the gravity of sin. Some preachers, you see, they preach about sin as if it was just nothing, it's nothing more than not living up to your potential. And then there's the tendency to describe sin as if it's just a sickness or a, a mental illness. You see, if you get the flu, you can't help it. You just you didn't know you walked by somebody that had the flu, so how could you help it? You got a flu. Doctor doesn't scold you for catching the flu. He gives you medicine for it. So in our day, sin is called a lack of self-esteem. You see, it's a psychological thing that needs some kind of treatment. Instead of saying we're all sinners, preachers say we're all broken. You see, being broken, this doesn't have the connotation of moral responsibility. It's just an accident, you see, that you, you got broken. It, ha- it can happen to anybody. And so when we speak of sin in these ways, instead of calling on sinners to repent and accept responsibility for their sin, we treat it as if it was just something that calls for therapy. We therefore set up therapy sessions in our churches, and we have these self-help seminars to deal with this or that problem that crops up instead of a straightforward call for repentance. Now, it should not surprise us then when we encounter commentators even who seem intent on minimizing the sin that's described in the very words that I read to you. Gunkel describes what is described here in Genesis 3 as a description of harmless and childish desire. Eve was just a child, you see. Susan, Susan Nittich, she, she argues for a feminist reading of the passage. Together with the snake, Eve is a bringer of culture. Francis Watson encourages the reader to view the serpent as the liberator. Eve is the heroine in her courageous quest for wisdom. And the Lord God is a just, jealous tyrant concerned only with the preservation of his own prerogatives. But Isaiah chapter 5 and verse 20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, 
who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Here in Genesis chapter 3, we have an account of the way in which Satan, using a beautiful, alluring serpent, tempts Adam and Eve to sin, and thereby initiating the sin and misery that has afflicted the human race ever since this took place. And of this old deceiver, Jesus said to the Jews, when he speaks a lie, he speaks of his own, because he's a liar and the father of it. But usually Satan, he doesn't come with bald-faced lies. His lies are carefully concealed. He's a master of the kind of euphemisms that we just spoke about a moment ago. And here in our text, verse 1 tells us that this serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field. In the two places where this word translated cunning is used in the book of Job, it carries a negative connotation. It's a craftier, cunning person that is preferred in that context. And this is the sense in which the word is being used here in Genesis chapter 3. The sly insinuations that Satan makes, his suggestions to evil, they're like you see the sinuous glidings of a serpent. He's cunning. He slithers right into the heart of Eve. And this is the process by which temptations found their way into her heart. And also, we might say, into Adam's heart. And I, lest I convey a wrong impression, we're emphasizing here, because the Bible emphasizes Satan's talking to Eve. But Adam's listening the whole time. Adam should have stopped the whole thing. He should have protected his wife, and so there's a sense in which even though so we don't think of her, and I think it's I'm not totally true for just to think of women as being the tempters or the temptresses. But what we have here is what we have, and we want to be faithful to what the Bible describes in this place. Our text, it divides itself into two uneven parts. In verses 1 through 5, we have the dialogue of temptation. And then in verses 6 through 7, we have the folly of transgression. And those are the two main headings that are there in your bulletins. And we're going to continue with this first main point. We're not going to get past the main first main point. I, I'm just so distressed over this passage and concerned that we nail this down, that we're going to stay at this point in these first five verses once again, which deal with this first heading, the dialogue of temptation. You see, Satan doesn't come to Eve and say, Hey, Eve, you see that forbidden tree over there? Go ahead and have a little taste. That's not the way he comes. Instead, you see, he, he, he uses a dialogue. He carefully crafts some questions, and he makes some comments, and he wiggles her way in this way into her heart. And as indicated in your outlines, there were four stages in this dialogue. In the first place, there was the, sinner, the serpent's question. In the last half of verse 1, he asks, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Or perhaps instead of a question, Satan's words were a feigned expression of surprise. It could be interpreted that way. Indeed, to think that God said that you're not to eat of any of the trees of the garden? But whatever it was a a question, whether it was an expression of surprise, it basically says the same thing. The serpent is 
is suggesting, as it were, uh, he, he's deviously exaggerating God's prohibition. God has generously provided all the trees of the garden and just forbids the one out of those trees. But Satan makes it look like he forbids them all. He's mean-hearted. He's selfish, this God. He's obsessively jealous over his orchard. And he says, look, God made all those loaded trees, you see. And the meaning here, the meaning of this God that he is, he says, nope, can't have any of them. Underlying Satan's question is the assumption that God's word is subject to our judgment also. And up to this moment, you see, this kind of a thought had never entered Eve's mind. And to Eve now, this is an intoxicating thought. The thought that a man or a woman can sit in judgment over God's words and kind of take some and take and reject the others and kind of sift them out the bad from the good and take take what he wants or she wants. This is this is a new thought to her. And likewise, Satan puts the idea, you see, into your head that while some of God's precepts are perfectly fine for other people, you're not put the way together that way, and you're just different, and your circumstances are different. And so he suggests the thought, Satan does, yes, it'd be best if you wait until you're married for the enjoyment of certain intimacies. But why would God keep you, so to speak, from all the trees of the garden now? What kind of a God would give you all those desires and then just say, nope, can't have any? That's the thought that Satan would put into your mind. Now the great issue at stake is this. Are you going to surrender your thoughts and desires in all things to God? There's some habit, some secret sin, some treasured possession, some romantic attachment, some bitter resentment. And in the context of your life, it seems like it's an insignificant piece of forbidden fruit. But it is at that very point that you are tempted to sift out God's word from what you want to believe and what you want to do. And your submission to God's word is at that point tested. So in the dialogue of temptation, we noticed first Satan's question. And then in our last study, we also noticed in the second place, Eve's revisions. And we read of them in verses 2 and 3. Having toyed with the serpent's distortions of God's word, she now descends into her own revisions of God's word. In the first place, she diminished God's word. God had said, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, chapter 2 and verse 17, but she leaves out the word every. And this diminishes the lavish generosity of, the, of God. And so she says in verse 2, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. She leaves out that word every tree of the garden. Of course, it's every one except for the one. So she diminishes God's word. And then secondly, she added to God's word. God had said, but of the tree of the, of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. But Eve adds concerning this tree, you shall not touch it. But the tree, the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat of it, nor shall you touch it. Those words she adds. And the addition of these words, they showed that she had begun to entertain Satan's lie, that God's being a little bit severe here. Just touch the tree, zap, you're over. You're dead. And so she makes the commandment, you see, stricter by this addition, and it shows that she's already begun to entertain suspicions of the goodness of God. And then there's a third revision that we noticed in her last sermon. She softened God's word. 
God's command forbidding eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it was reinforced by these words, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Chapter 2 and verse 17. But Eve leaves out a very significant word. She leaves out the word surely. You shall surely die. In her rendition of the threat, you shall surely die. It's replaced with lest you die. And the certainty of death, you see, is removed. And in the same way, sinners, they seek to soften what God says about eternal punishment and the consequences of rebelling against God. And sometimes even as Christians, we dabble with sin. And the thought of the consequences of our disobedience, we think, well, it's not going to be, I'll just get forgiven, and then we'll go back to everything the way it was. And we, we soften, you see, God's threats. So she makes these revisions. And then these revisions, they paved the way for a third part of the dialogue of the temptation. And this brings us to a new point this morning. And this third aspect of this dialogue is the serpent's contradiction. Verse 4. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. Now in God's prohibition as recorded in chapter 2 and verse 17, God gives this solemn reason for obeying a command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God says, For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now in the Hebrew original, the word for die, it occurs twice. And it's first in the imperfect, and then it's as an infinitive. And this is a Hebrew construction that plays, stresses emphasis. We might translate it, dying you will die. But that's not exactly the way we talk. It doesn't really catch you, even, even that, the intensive nature of the original. So many of our English versions, they translate it, I think it's a good translation, you shall surely die. It emphasizes it. This isn't just a maybe you're going to die. Some people die. You will surely die. Now in Eve's quotation of God's prohibition, this intensification is missing. But interestingly, Satan, who knows what God said, he uses this intensive construction in his words, uh, construction in his words to, to Eve. But he adds one word. He adds the word not. You will not surely die. That's the way he puts it. And this is a direct frontal attack on the earlier threat that God had made against this sin. And this is why the third heading in our outlines reads the serpent's contradiction. He blatantly contradicts what God has said. It was an in-your-face refutation of God. It's as if Satan took the you shall surely die of God's threat and he changed it to not you shall not surely die. Take that, God. It won't happen. Well, here is the most bold-faced contradiction. Satan's word versus God's word. And it's highly significant that the first doctrine to receive a flat denial of Satan is the doctrine of divine judgment. Isn't that interesting? He challenges that doctrine, that you're going to actually be punished for, for what you do. And it'll be death punishment. He attacks this doctrine right from the beginning. And the loathing in modern culture for this doctrine that comes from the fact that this is the devil's world. As theologians, 
They speak of it as cosmos diabolica, diabolicus. It is the, the devil's world. As John declares, we know that we are of God. And the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. 1 John 5, 19. Satan is the prince of the power of this air. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Ephesians 2, 2. Now, in a limited, literal sense, what Satan said is true. The rest of the chapter, it reads almost like a vindication of what Satan said. If you take it literally, during that 24-hour period, Adam and Eve did not go through that separation of body and soul that we think of when we speak about somebody dying. But in many other ways, they did indeed die that day when they sinned. The spiritual separation between their souls and God, which we call spiritual death, this took place on that day. And the seeds of physical death, they were set in motion in their bodies. And this illustrates, you see, the way in which Satan is a master of half-truths. And he uses these half-truths to make God look like a liar. And he does his best, you see, to, God, to bring God's name into disrepute and make God's word look like it's ridiculous. In a sermon on this passage, Thomas Boston, he gives this expanded paraphrase of the devil's words to Eve. You shall not surely die. God indeed did say so, so for your terror to keep you at awe. But don't entertain such hard and unworthy thoughts of that God who is infinitely good and gracious. Do not think for such a trifle as the eating of a little fruit. He will undo you and all your posterity forever. So this is the way that Satan talks to Eve. Having come to this third phrase in the dialogue of temptation, the pathology of this dialogue becomes very clear. In the first phase, Satan poses a question based on a perversion of God's word. In the second phase, Eve begins to question God's word. She makes her revisions, as we noted, those three different revisions. And we have seen how her doubts are expressed in those ways. But now here in this third phase, Satan boldly declares that God's word is simply wrong. Now, Eve should have recoiled in horror and run away screaming at that point, at this point. Adam should have stepped right in and said, no, that's not exactly, that's not what he says. Adam should have protected her. He should have reinforced this reaction by stepping forth to uphold the good word of God. But Eve was buying it, you see. She was completely entranced at this point by Satan's words. She was flushed with excitement. She's consumed with anticipation. Well, what's, what's this all about here? I didn't see this whole picture, you see. This is kind of an interesting proposal you're making here. Now, previously, in fear, she has shrunk back from the forbidden fruit. But now that God's threat has begun to seem a little unreal, she begins to think that maybe the issue of this forbidden fruit is worth revisiting. And... She's entranced, you see, with these words. And previously she's been captive of God's word up to this point. But now she's beginning to be ensnared and be captivated by the serpent's word. 
And this is why it is so important to refuse Satan's temptations decisively at the outset when he first begins to play with your mind. Eve's revisions, they prepared her heart for listening to the blatant contradiction that comes next. You shall not surely die. And no matter how painful it might be, young man, young woman, as you get on your computer, no matter how painful it might be, refuse to click on that clickbait that plays a carnal attraction to your heart. You know what it might lead you to. Turn away from it instantly, right then and there. When a brother says something to you that think plays into the ungodly political spirit of the age and anger begins to well up in your heart and you want to refute him and stomp out his stupid political ideas, stop! Refuse to give way to sinful anger. You know your heart. And instead say, well, I, brother, we have a difference of opinion here. I don't want to get in an argument here. Let's pray that God will lead us in the right way and lead our country in the right way. Tell your brother you don't want to argue. You see, this is what's behind the teaching of the Lord Jesus about cutting out, your, cutting off your right hand and plucking out your right eye. Robert Raines, he relates a very striking incident of somebody that did this in a physical way. Long wooden chutes had been built into the forest to slide tree trunks down the slope to the valley and into the river. They were hundreds of years lo- yards long. They were smooth and polished inside, and the foresters, they used these chutes, uh, 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 used them as well as to send the trunks down that they'd cut. Sometimes the foresters, they would also use them to get down the slope. They would sit on the floor of the chute, or maybe they would sit on an axe handle. They'd go, they'd go tobogganing right down themselves, and they'd save themselves a lot of trouble to walk down the mountainside. On one occasion, a workman, they caught his foot in a hole in the chute, way down the chute. He couldn't get his foot free. At that moment, he heard a shout of warning, which meant that a tree was down, coming on, was on its way down. And he saw the trunk coming down the chute. He still couldn't free his foot from the, from the, from the chute. And so he took his axe and he hacked off his foot and he jumped out of the chute just in time. He was crippled for life, but at least he was still alive. And so, Mr. Rains, he offers this prayer. Oh God, give me the courage to cut out of my life that liaison which is threatening my family's happiness, that indulgence which is snapping my strength of purpose, that doubt which is leading me to disobey you, that disobedience which is causing me to doubt you. Satan comes with, at some point you recognize that this is a bald-faced contradiction of what God has said. I just need to stop this right now. Cut it out, pluck out my right eye, and refuse this sin. Well, we've looked at the third. We've looked at the serpent's question. We've looked at the second thing, Eve's revisions. Thirdly, the serpent's contradiction. But now I want to come to the fourth segment of this dialogue. And the fourth segment is the serpent's insinuation, which we read in verse 5. Let's read those words again. Verse 4, he says, you shall not surely die. Verse 5, for God knows that in the day that you eat of it, 
your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, in contradiction of God's threat, Satan is just to say, he, he's just declared, you will not surely die. In other words, God's word is false. And now he's, he moves another step. He moves from God's word being false to God's heart being false. He directs Eve's attention to God's inner thoughts that he pretends to know. And implicit in his suggestion is the suggestion that the serpent knows God better than the woman knows. He claims the ability to penetrate God's mind and understand God's purposes, to know what God knows. And so far from bringing damaging repercussions, he says to her, in effect, eating of the fruit of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, this will bring blessings to you. Eating this fruit, it'll make you godlike. It'll help you know good and evil, he says. Your eyes are going to be open. You're going to see new and exciting dimensions you've never known, you've never experienced before. So he plays, you see, the part of a helpful friend. He informs her of the possibility of being more than she is and of being more than God, of course, intended for her to be. And so in effect, he tells this woman the reason why God has forbidden the fruit of that tree it's that far from dying, you're going to enter into a new, into a more noble and more excellent kind of life. The eyes of your understanding, which they're shut now to, to, to know and experience a lot of these kinds of things, they're going to be open wide. You're going to see wonders. You're going to experience wonderful mysteries. You can't even imagine these things now, what you will experience and know. Now here we should point out, there's a certain kind of truth to, to these claims. Satan promises Eve and Adam two things that their eyes would be opened and that they would become like God or it could be translated God. It's ambiguous in the original. They would be like God's knowing good and evil. And there's a sense in which both of these things did come to pass. Their eyes were opened when they ate of the fruit. We read that right after they both ate, verse 7 tells us, then the eyes of both of them were opened. And then notice what we read about them Becoming like God, the second thing that Satan promises. Verse 22, then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And furthermore, Adam and Eve, they don't appear to die in that very day as they ate from the tree. So you see, on the surface, the serpents claims they have a semblance of truth. It's important that we notice this because Satan's distortions always have a ring of truth to them. You see, a lie doesn't work unless it is mixed in with a lot of, a lot of truth. At least some truth. And as it's been pointed out, rat poison is actually 96% good cornmeal. It's only 4% arsenic. The rat's attracted, you see, to what seems like it's going to be good food. And as we examine Satan's claims, we need to ask, therefore, what Adam and Eve knew before they sinned and compare it with what he's offering. They knew good. They knew both what it is to do good and they knew what it is to receive God's goodness, which is lavished upon them. They also knew the possibility of evil. They knew that it was something they shouldn't do. 
It's something that's forbidden. It's something that brings terrible consequences. They knew these things. They also knew the fruit of evil, for God has told them on that very day that they would eat, there would be a kind of death. But what they did not know was what it was like to experience and know sin in that way. What it's like to know and experience taking Satan's side against God's. They didn't know that at this point. And they didn't know by experience the horrible fruits of sin. They didn't know the horror of what it's going to be like to be driven out of the garden from the presence of the Lord. They didn't know the curse that's going to come upon them. They didn't know all the miseries that are going to visit the world and be inflicted upon their own lives. The arch deceiver of men and women, he made it sound like the knowledge that they would, they would get, you see, it's going to bring them untold happiness and fulfillment. Yes, as the serpent promised, they did in a sense come to know evil. But the knowledge that they gained, it wasn't an intellectual achievement. It wasn't an entrance into hitherto unknown wonders. It was instead an experimental knowledge of sin from experiencing what sin is and its consequences. A bitter kind of knowledge. What it's like to have sin spread its terrible infection through your whole soul and enslave you to it. They would come to know its hatred, its bitterness, its cruelty, its lies, its debasement, its disease, its death, its eternal torment. So yes, Adam and Eve did acquire a kind of knowledge hitherto unknown by experience. But that experimental knowledge was an awful knowledge. And this is what Satan does, my friends. He always mixes in truth with his lies. And to a large extent, the lies are what he leaves out. He doesn't give Adam and Eve an honest picture of what this knowledge is going to include. And he doesn't do that with us. So children, are you awake, children? I want to, I want to talk to you just for a moment, children. When you're tempted to disobey mom and dad, Satan doesn't tell you what it's going to be like if you grow up continuing to disobey. He doesn't tell you what's going to be like if you just turn out to be a rebellious, stubborn person. He doesn't tell you what's going to be like, how you're going to be damned and how you're going to go to hell if you keep on rebelling against God and the, one that God, and the ones that God puts over you. He hides that all from you when you're tempted to disobey what your mom and your dad tell you. He doesn't tell you that you're going to go to hell if you rebel against God and, he, and, you, and you rebel against the ones that God has put over you. He, he keeps that from you. And young people, when you're alone with that one that you have a romantic attraction to, he offers forbidden pleasures. But he doesn't tell you the shame you're going to feel afterwards. He doesn't tell you of the heartache of a broken relationship that went too fast. He doesn't tell you of the lifelong regrets that you're going to have. He doesn't tell you of the intense pain that you can experience later on in life due to a marriage that's not been built on a, on a sure foundation. He doesn't tell you of the degrading habits that will enslave you, all of which could be traced back to those early forays into sin, into activities that seek the cover of darkness. He doesn't tell you how impossible it may be to break loose from those sins on your own once it's gripped you. 
He doesn't tell you the hell that awaits those that remain slaves of sin and are never delivered. He doesn't, he, he hides all that from you. He doesn't tell you that. He tells you of the glistening wonders and the pleasures that he offers. But it's only, you see, the misery that he keeps concealed. And young man, as you go out into the world, and perhaps you're training for the world by joining a union or maybe learning a trade, maybe it's to go to college, require a career that perhaps requires advanced education, whatever it is. Satan wants to destroy you with pride. And when you begin to succeed, he'll convince you you are what you are because you work harder than other people and because you've got some extraordinary skills that other people need. Or maybe you've got extraordinary diligence. But what he doesn't show you is this plan to cause your soul to shrivel up to the point where you no longer have interest in God's word because you're better than that. You've got more important things to do. And you're more smart. And this primitive, you get to the place where now you think, well, those dumb Christians, they believe all that stuff, those fables. I don't need that stuff anymore. He doesn't show you that unbelief. It's going to begin to grip your heart and destroy your soul forever. He doesn't tell you the awful end of those that seek to gain the world or at least a little bit of it, and then lose their own souls. But now coming back to Genesis chapter 3. In addition to these half-truths and lies that Satan told Eve with respect to what eating the fruit would mean for her, this is all a slander against God. What he says here in this verse, verse 5, God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, You'll be like God, or God's knowing good and evil. He's slandering God when he says that. And this is why we have the words, the serpent's insinuation, for the heading of this point. It's bad enough that Satan holds back from Adam and Eve the terrible consequences of their sin, both for them and also for the world. It's bad enough that he holds all that back. But there's also this, too, in what he says. It's slander against God. This is the worst thing that he does. He portrays God as forbidding this fruit because he's not really good. He paints this picture of God, you see, as a selfish meanie that's holding back from Eve and Adam pleasures and uh, their potential, you see, that they could achieve. They have the opportunity to become like God's. But God's killing whatever possibility they might have of achieving that lofty ideal. And Satan portrays God, you see, as somebody that gets jealous of anybody that might enjoy the privileges and blessings that he enjoys. Simply put, Satan's words were an attack on the goodness of God. In his great goodness, God has lavished upon his children tokens of his generosity and goodness. He's prepared for them, he did back then, it was like a paradise with a big smorgasbord. They could have whatever they wanted any time of the day. Luscious desserts hanging right from trees. He, he gave them a lavish provision of goodness. He, they gave them paradise to live in. But Satan makes God out to be stingy, mean tyrant that can't care less for the well-being of this first pair. This is one of the lies that Satan has told ever since. 
He tempts the single person with the thought, well, how can God be good and not give me that life partner that I need that would make my life complete? How could this be a good God? How could he be good and keep back that which would make me happy? How can that be a good God? In a particular, as Satan pretends to offer the good that he says that God is withholding from you, he uses two different lures. And these two lures are in this text. Now, for the sake of you that have never been on the men's fishing trip or the father-son fishing trip in the past, if you go up to the Saranac Lakes and the Adirondacks, and if you want to catch northern pike, you need to have a lure that's going to, you can cast out and you can reel it back in. And it looks like a shiny, colorful fish that's swimming, and it looks more beautiful than any other fish that the, that the pike sees at that moment. And off of these lures, they have some feathers that cover the hook. And the fisherman, you see, he tries to select a lure that's going to look more enticing than anything else that's swimming around the water at that moment. And so here in the Garden of Eden, Satan is using two lures by which he seeks to convey the impression that what he's offering is better than what anything that God is offering. The first lure is the lure of divinity. This is summed up in the words, you will be like God, or as it could be translated, you shall be like God's. Von Rad, he writes that the serpent's insinuation is the possibility of an extension of human existence beyond the limits for it by God at creation. An increase of life, not only in the sense of pure intellectual enrichment, but also a familiarity with the power over and mysteries that lie beyond man. And this is a lure that Satan has offered ever since the beginning. You're going to have, be like God, you see. You're going to, you're going to have, achieve a potential that you've never had before. Sin, it's offered as it offers a mystical, heavenly ecstasies to people. And if Eve is just going to stretch forth her lovely hand and just take that fruit, this divinity is going to be hers. As R. Kent Hughes relates, I remember as a young high school boy sitting in front of my locker, tying my shoes slowly, as I listened to the older boys describe their backseat exploits. Its lore was the Gnostic promise of elevation to the elite realms of another world, which God's word withheld, I thought. But it was actually the lure of hell. And the particular aspect of divinity that's offered to Adam and Eve is that of knowing good and evil in the way that God knows it. God in his omnipresence and God in his omniscience he is intimately aware of evil. He knows it through and through. And whatever evil is, God is there because God is everywhere. He knows evil. He knows its nature more truly than the perpetrator of that evil and the sufferer, of the, the victim of that evil. He knows it. And it's the peculiar prerogative and perfection of God to be present where evil is and yet not to be tainted by that evil. Only God can do this. He's holy. He's untainted by it. He's forever blessed. And in his purity, he can never be attracted to it. 
He knows it perfectly, and yet his holy being hates it, as we heard this morning in the former hour. He is the Holy One of pure eyes that will behold iniquity. And yet you see man in his pride, as instructed by Satan, he thinks that he might safely and with impunity, no evil in that sense, he can become personally acquainted with it. And in his pride he supposes that he can know evil without loving evil, at least not loving it too much. This is the subtlety of this temptation. You shall be as God's knowing good and evil, as God does. You suppose you can know the deep things of Satan, as some in Thyatira did, Revelation 2.24. You suppose you can know the deep things of Satan and come off unscathed. You suppose you can, you can dabble in a forbidden knowledge and come off unscathed. Satan would persuade you that your holiness, you see, it's as, as immutable as the Creator's holiness. And you can have the same acquaintance with evil that God has and yet be perfect and, and yet be not affected by it. And dear ones, don't suppose, don't suppose that you can watch something that's filled with impurity and your soul is going to be un, unscathed by that impurity. Do you suppose that you can know the deep things of Satan? That you can trifle with the realm of demons? that you can trifle with seances, that you can read horoscopes and the like and not be ensnared by the evil one? Do you think you can know those deep things of, of, of Satan out of sinful curiosity? You can thereby be unscathed? You think that's true? Do you suppose that out of your sinful curiosity you can become embroiled in a gossip chain? Oh, I want to find out what so-and-so said. I want to find out what, what, what the pastor said. And, and well, this little thing that I heard wasn't so good about the pastor. Or this thing was uh, so, not so good about that, that person over there in the church. You think you could listen to that gossip chain and not have your soul defiled by it? God says we are not to speak evil of one another. And how dare we then listen to the evil without our hearts being defiled? According to Psalm 15, the upright man does not backbite with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor does he take up a reproach against his neighbor. He doesn't take up little geezy, little morsels of gossip. He doesn't listen to it. James commends the meekness of wisdom, but he says if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, this wisdom does not come from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. Well, in addition to the lure of divinity, Satan's words contain one more thing, the lure of moral autonomy. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. He convinced Eve that by taking and eating the fruit, she'd become wise. She'd be equal with God. She could autonomously decide, therefore, what's right and wrong. God, you see, is kind of boxing her in. But if she just takes this fruit and just decides, she can make decisions. Okay, this is right or this is wrong, I'll make the decision, apart from what God says. Moral autonomy. Making moral choices autonomously. In other words, apart from what God says. This is what Satan's trying to get her to do. This is an intoxicating thought to her. She's free to make her own rules now. She can have her way. And this thought still intoxicates millions. 
A funeral director I read of related that among unbelievers, Frank Sinatra's My Way, I Did It My Way, is first place in funeral favorites. Best of all, he croons, I did it my way. And another funeral director said that he even witnessed that song as a musical motif for a funeral communion. Imagine. But in truth, my way is a death dirge. It's the epitome of the spirit of our age. It's the implosion, you see, of the autonomous self. My way. It's like that, that mythical tale of that siren that's there in, the, there in the waters that draws unsuspecting sailors to herself to their death. I did it my way is, is hell's way. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God, they asserted their own moral autonomy. They decided they would determine what's right and what's wrong. And instead of submitting to the authority of God's word to make them wise, they autonomously decided this issue for themselves. And my friends, only God has the right to autonomously decide what's right and what's wrong. In a very real sense, this is the essence of sin. This is what sin is all boiled down to. It's setting up our will as against the Creator's will. The essence of sin is disobedience. And disobedience takes place where we set up our will against the will of God. And at the bottom of this daring disobedience is pride. Pride says, I want to do it my way. I think my way is the best way. And by eating the forbidden fruit, Adam and Eve, they sought to exalt themselves against God. And this is what we do when we stubbornly determine that we're going to do it our way instead of God's way. And where is God's way revealed? God's way is revealed in the word of God. I urge you, therefore, we're going to talk about this more in our next sermon, to saturate your mind with what God's way is. Saturate your mind with what God's word says. Be conformed to that word. I've just begun to read the book of Joshua in my morning readings. And in chapter 1, I was struck with what we read in verses 7 and 8. Where we read, only be strong and very courageous, that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may prosper wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. But then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. The devil says, you do it your way. That's the successful way. God says that's the destructive way. That's hell's way. God's way is this. Meditate in this book. Keep your life in conformity to this book. Submit to God's will. Your will is to be conformed to his will, not the other way around. Above all other things, the Lord Jesus Christ was a man whose every thought, whose every word, whose every deed was, was governed by the word. He's in the wilderness. In each temptation, he immediately goes to God's word to refute the temptation. And as you come to the inner sanctuary of his prayers, 
as his garments are soaked in blood, as he's wrestling with God in Gethsemane. The essence of God's of Jesus' submission to God's way, it's expressed in those words, not as I will, but as you will. And this, my friends, if you're a stranger to this Lord Jesus, if you're a rebel against the Lord God, you're living still according to Adam and Eve's way before they were converted. You need this Jesus. You need this one who was a perfect submitter to God's word, who perfectly kept God's will, conformed his will to God's will. It's only by coming to this one who perfectly obeyed when you have disobeyed who perfectly became a substitute for the disobedient by his obedience. This is the only one that is set before you as a savior of sinners. Let's pray. Most gracious and blessed God, we do thank you and bless you that you've given unto us this vivid lesson that we've read in your word. We pray, Lord, that as we're tempted in days to come, that would come back to our minds, that you will remind us of the folly of embracing the lies of the evil one. We plead with you, Lord, that you would train us to recognize them, that we would not be like the, the rat that eats the poison unsuspectingly. We pray, Lord, that you'd be pleased to help us to see beneath what appears to be true, the lies of the evil one, and even the lies of our own heart, which often deceive us. And we plead with you, Lord, for any child or any young person or old person that's in this room that seeks to do it their way, wants to live independently of you. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would bring such a person to the place where they recognize that they need to bow before your will, repent of their stubborn rebellion, and especially submit to themselves to the Lord Jesus Christ, to this one who came as the only way for sinners to be saved. May they come to him and find life everlasting. May all of us live as he lived, saying as he said in our prayers again and again, not my will, but your will be done. We pray these things in the precious name of this Savior. Amen.